Chapter Ten of the Wonderful Bed. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Wonderful Bed by Gertrude Nevels. Chapter Ten, Meeting a Queen. First came a large company of soldiers, almost exactly like Captain Jinks and the sergeant, except that their uniforms were a little shabbier looking, and their arms a little less brightly polished. They held themselves stiffly, and marched very well, in spite of the fact that many of them had suffered severe injuries, such as the loss of a leg or an arm at the least, in some former campaign, and all of them were rather the worse for wear. After the soldiers came the band playing shrilly on their tiny instruments, and next, to the children's delight and astonishment, rolled a number of little carriages drawn by mechanical horses. Rudolph was so keenly interested in the workings of these mechanical horses that he hardly noticed the fine ladies who sat stiffly on the cushioned seats of the carriages, very grandly dressed and holding beautiful pink and blue parasols over their curled heads. Suddenly Anne grabbed his arm and whispered, Look! Look, did you see them? Marie Louise and Angelina Elfreda, my own dolls, and they never so much as bowed. Perhaps they didn't know you, whispered Rudolph. They did, too, returned his sister angrily. They just laughed and turned their heads the other way, horrid things. Just wait, I'll tell them what I think of them. But, oh, Rudolph, here come more carriages and more dolls in them, and how queerly they are dressed these last... I mean, I never saw any dolls like them before. See their poke bonnets and their fringed mantles and their little hoop skirts? But, oh, look! Look! Can that be the queen? Anne's voice sounded disappointed as well as surprised, and in her excitement she spoke so loud that Captain Jinks himself turned his threatening eye on her and called out, Silence! But Anne paid no attention to him, nor did the other children. The eyes of all three were fixed upon a little figure who rode all alone at the very end of the procession. They knew she must be the queen by the respectful way in which Captain Jinks and the sergeant saluted, but she was very different from what they had imagined a queen to be. The wooden horse which she rode was not handsome. Indeed, one of his legs was missing but he pranced and curvetted so proudly upon the remaining three that it seemed as if he knew he carried a queen upon his back. The royal lady kept her seat with perfect ease, and when she came opposite the children she checked her steed, halted, and gazed down upon them. "'Have you forgotten me?' she said. Then she smiled, and they knew her at once. It was the corncob doll. Though she had grown so much larger and seemed so much grander, Yet she looked just the same as when they had taken her out of Aunt Jane's sandalwood box, from which, the children now remembered, certain tin soldiers and a three-legged wooden horse had also come. The queen still wore her flowing greeny-yellow gown, her hair was braided in two long braids that hung over her shoulders, and she carried her quaint little head high, in truly royal fashion. Now she dismounted gracefully from her horse and came toward the children, holding out her hand. They dared not look her in the face. They were all three ashamed to speak to her, and especially Rudolph, who remembered only too clearly all the unkind things he had said about the corncob doll, and how very, very near he had come to roasting her over the nursery fire. The little tin captain stepped eagerly forward. 
"'Shall I give orders to prepare for the execution, Your Majesty?' he began in a voice full of pleased excitement. "'These suspicious persons are already under arrest. They would furnish very excellent targets for the artillery practice. If it should please Your Majesty to offer a prize for the best shot, or if Your Majesty is in a hurry now, a nice dip in boiling oil would finish them off very neatly.' "'Be quiet, Jinks,' said the Queen, frowning. "'You talk so much I can't think.' If it wasn't for those tiresome revolutions in my capital city, I believe I'd banish you. Let me see, how many of them have you suppressed for me? Exactly twelve, Your Majesty, answered Jinks with a low bow, and I beg to announce that we are at this moment on the brink of the thirteenth. Baker's dozen, Your Majesty. Oh, it's the baker this time, is it? asked the Queen with a sigh. What's the matter with him, Jinks? Same old trouble, Your Majesty. Your court, those doll ladies in particular, have become so haughty. Naughty, you mean, Jinx, corrected the queen. So haughty and naughty, your majesty, that they've absolutely refused to eat their crusts. Did anybody, I ask your majesty, ever hear the likes of that? There was a moment's silence. The queen shook her head. The children tried to appear at their ease, but they were not. Anne looked particularly uncomfortable. She was not fond of her crusts. "'Well, go on, Jinx, what else?' said the Queen. "'Well, Your Majesty, this keeps the baker busy day and night, baking and bread, not to speak of the cakes and pies, and he says he feels he had not a stand it any longer. He's going to strike. As for the populace, Your Majesty, they only get the stale loaves, or none at all. And they're wild, Your Majesty.' very wild indeed. I suppose they are, Jinx, sighed the queen. And the worst of it is, your majesty, we're very short of soldiers. The commander-in-chief, both Jinx and the sergeant, drew themselves up and saluted at the name, has taken a whole company to the seaboard for to repel the cat pirates. And very fierce them pirates are, I've heard tell. We may have to send him reinforcements at any time. The commander-in-chief, Jinx, said the queen haughtily, is a great general. He will manage the pirates, and the baker, too, if you can't do it. And if the worst should come to the worst before he gets back, why, I'll just abdicate, that's all, and the baker can be king, and much good may it do him. She turned to the children and smiled at them. Now, she said, you shall come with me, and I will show you where I used to live before I was a queen. The corncob doll waved her hand, gave an order, and immediately the carriage in which sat Marie Louise and Angelina Elfrida was turned and driven back to where the children stood. "'These ladies will enjoy a walk,' said the queen. Very sulkily, the two elegant doll ladies got out of their carriage, not daring to disobey, and passed by Anne noses in the air without so much as a nod. "'Never mind them, dears,' said the queen kindly. "'They don't know any better.' Now, jump in. The children obeyed, hardly able to believe in their good luck, and in another moment, much to the surprise and indignation of Captain Jenks, they were rolling away from him, the queen riding close beside their carriage. You are safe now, said she, at least until the revolution begins. If Jenks should fire his cannon, that's a sign it's starting. But don't worry, as she saw that the children were looking rather alarmed. I dare say it'll blow over without a battle. And now I want you to look about you, for I don't think you have ever seen anything like this before. They had not indeed, and as their shyness wore off, the children began to ask the queen a great many questions. 
Was this her capital city they were coming to? Were those the stores where all the dolls' clothes in the world came from? Was it real water in the little fountain playing in the middle of the square? All this time they were being carried swiftly through the streets of the neatest, prettiest, little toy town anyone could wish to see. Both sides of the main street were lined with little shops, and as the children leaned out of the carriage for a brief glimpse into their glittering windows, they saw sights that made them long to stop and look more closely. There were clothing shops, shoe shops, candy shops, a very grand-looking milliner's establishment where the children were amused to catch a glimpse of Angelina Elfreda and Marie Louise trying on hats, and a gaily decorated doll theater where a crowd of dolls were pushing their way in to see a Punch and Judy show. There were markets where busy customers thronged to buy all sorts and kinds of doll eatables, turkeys and chickens the size of sparrows and hummingbirds, yellow pumpkins as big as walnuts, red-cheeked apples like cranberries, cabbages fully as large as the end of your thumb, and freshly baked pies as big around as a penny. Peter's eyes nearly popped out of his head as he passed all these good things without hope of sampling any of them. The last shop they passed was that of the royal baker, and they noticed that its windows were boarded up, while a crowd of common dolls stood about in front of the door muttering angrily. But now the business part of the town was left behind, and the children were being driven through street after street of gaily painted, neatly built little houses with gardens full of tiny bright-colored flowers, stables, garages, everything complete that the heart of the most exacting doll in the world could desire. Anne and Peter were quite wild about it all, and even Rudolph condescended to admire. Now the houses were left behind, and they entered a little park, where tiny artificial lakes glittered, and stiff little trees were set about on the bright green grass. In the center of this park stood the doll palace. It was pure white, finished in gold, and had real glass windows in it, and white marble steps leading up to it, and high gilded gates where a guard of soldiers turned out to present arms, and a band was beginning to play. The rest of the procession turned in at the gates of the palace, but rather to the children's disappointment, the queen gave their coachman orders to drive on. "'You may see my palace afterward, if we have time,' she said, "'but I want to take you first of all to see my dear old home "'where I used to live when I was a girl, when the little mother took care of me.' The children looked at one another. Then Peter said boldly, "'Was that when you were Aunt Jane's doll? "'You weren't a queen then, were you?' "'No, indeed,' answered Her Majesty, smiling. "'I was just an ugly little doll, the happiest best-loved little doll in all the world, and with the dearest little mother. But here we are, and you shall see for yourself what a snug home I had. The old doll house looked neat enough from the outside, to be sure, but I am afraid if the children had run across it in the attic at Aunt Jane's, they would have taken it for a couple of large packing boxes set one upon the other. Once inside, however, they forgot how impatient they had been to see the palace and its gorgeous furnishings. They were so interested and amused by the homely furnishings and neat little arrangements so proudly displayed to them by the corncob queen. She led the children through one room after another, explaining each thing as they passed it. Those little muslin curtains at the windows, the little mother had hemmed them all herself. 
It was she who had made that wonderful cradle out of cardboard, with sheets from a pair of grandfather's old pocket handkerchiefs. She who had pieced that tiniest of tiny patchwork quilts. In the kitchen, that neat set of pots and pans made from acorns and the shells of walnuts was the work of her hands, assisted, perhaps, by the penknife of a certain little boy. That blue and white tea set on the pantry shelves, the children recognized it at once as having come out of the sandalwood box. Why, it was almost worn out from the number of cups of tea the old doll and her little mother had taken together in the good old days. It's just the dearest little house in the world, sighed Anne, when after having seen and admired everything to their heart's content, they took their places in the carriage again. And we don't wonder you love it. The things that come straight from the toy shops are not really half so nice as the things you fix yourself. We understand now. But I suppose, she added thoughtfully, you find it much grander being a queen. Grander, perhaps, sighed the corncob doll, but a great deal more of a nuisance. However, just then the pop of a toy cannon interrupted the queen's speech. They had driven back almost to the palace, and could see a crowd of common dolls of all kinds and sizes gathering on the green in front of the gilded gates. At the same moment a troop of soldiers headed by the little tin captain came running from the direction of the town, evidently with the intention of putting a stop to the disturbance. "'The revolution,' said the queen calmly, "'just as I expected. Now I am afraid I shall have to send you out of town.' "'But why?' Rudolph began in his arguing voice. "'We don't want to go. "'We want to stay and fight on your side, "'and I'm sure we'd be very useful. "'Why, I'd just as leave command your army as not, and—' "'Thank you very much,' said the corncob queen. "'But what would Captain Jinks say to that? "'He is in command, you know. "'And if he should fail me, "'why, the commander-in-chief will soon be back "'from capturing the cat pirates.' is this fellow you call the commander-in-chief anyway rudolph interrupted crossly the queen looked him straight in the eye i hope she said that you may all be allowed to see him some day if you are good he is a great soldier he never sulks and always obeys without asking questions that is more than some little boys do rudolph hung his head and the queen added hastily but now I see that Captain Jinks and the baker are going to hold a conference. I must go and join them. Your coachman will drive you out of town the back way. Now, where would you like to go? Back to our Aunt Jane, please, said Anne quickly. Can you tell us the way? No, said the Queen. I mustn't. But I have a friend who is a dreamkeeper just over the border, and I think he may be able to help you. I'll tell the coachman to drive you there. Now... Goodbye. Goodbye, goodbye, called the children. The coachman touched up the horses. They were whirled away in a cloud of dust through which they looked back regretfully at the queenly figure on the little wooden horse who waved her hand again and again in kindly farewell. They saw her joined by Captain Jinks and by a stout person in a white cap and apron who handed the queen what seemed to be some kind of document printed upon a large sheet of pie crust. That was the baker, I guess, said Rudolph, and I dare say what he was handing her was the declaration of war. Oh, what a shame it is we're going to miss all the fun. And the refreshments, sighed Peter. We always do. I never did taste a declaration of war, but it looked 
awful good. The very next time I see one, I'm going to... But what Peter was going to do, Anne and Rudolph did not hear, for at that moment they were all three nearly spilled out of the little carriage by the furious rate at which their driver turned a corner. They had left the doll city far behind them and were out on the long brown road that led past the little tent where the children had been arrested by Jinx and the sergeant. Now they were out in the open country, hurrying past the wonderful bright-colored plains, past fields of pink and purple, blue and green and yellow, white and scarlet, faster and faster all the time, the horses rushing along with such curious irregular jerks and bounds that it was almost impossible for the children to keep their seats, and they expected at each moment to be dumped in the middle of the road. "'Look out!' shouted Rudolph to the coachman. "'Don't you see you are going to upset us?' The coachman was a very grand-looking person in a white and gold livery. He never even turned his powdered head as he shouted back, didn't have no orders not to, and for some time they tore on faster than ever. At last Anne leaned forward and caught hold of one of the coachman's little gold-embroidered coat-tails. Oh, do take care, she cried. You might run somebody down. That's it, the coachman's voice sounded faint and jerky, and the children could hardly catch the words that floated back to them. Running down, running down, as fast as ever i can most complicated insides in all the kingdom can't be wound up not by likes of you the horses were no longer galloping now they were slowing up now they stopped but with such a sudden jerk that all three children were tumbled out into the road they had been expecting this to happen for so long that the thing was not such a shock after all, and somehow they landed without being hurt in the slightest. They picked themselves up and saw the little carriage standing at the side of the road, the horses perfectly motionless, each with a forefoot raised in the air, the coachman stiff and still upon his box, gazing straight in front of him. "'He'll stay like that,' said Peter mournfully, rubbing the dust from his knees, "'till he's wound up again.' I wish we had the key. I wish we did, said Rudolph crossly. You know what Betsy says about if wishes were horses, beggars could ride. Well, they aren't, so we've got to walk now. I wonder where we are. Looking around them, the children saw that they had come to the very last of the many-colored fields, where the brown road ended in a stretch of creamy yellow grass. Just beyond, a thick woods began but was divided from the creamy field by a broad, bright strip of color, like a long flower-bed, planted with flowers of all kinds and colors, set in all sorts of different patterns, stars, triangles, diamonds, and squares. "'That's the border!' shouted Anne, and over there somewhere we'll find the person the Queen said would help us get back to Aunt Jane. Come on!' As she spoke, she bounded off across the field, the two boys after her, and in less time than it takes to tell it, they had run through the tall yellow grass, jumped the border, and stood upon the edge of the wood. End of chapter 10